Um, good morning, everyone. I'm Ignate, and um, I'll be doing the passage from James 5, verse 7 to 12 this morning. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Testing, testing, beautiful. Morning, everybody. It's so nice to be here. Um, for those of you who've heard me here before, um, it's amazing to have the proof that you do meet indoors. Of all the times I've preached here, never once have I been invited inside. Uh, I've had to bear the elements. I don't know if that's sort of, sort of punishment because I live in the, the second greatest neighborhood in Africa. Uh, that is a true statistic based on some poll that just recently happened. Seapoint is the second coolest neighborhood in Africa and the 38th in the world, if you are wondering. Um, number one in Africa is someplace in Nairobi that I don't know. Uh, I thought it might be Bloberg, and I thought I might be able to like, you know, kick off with that and say that you guys are the coolest. Unfortunately, apparently, I come from the coolest, um, the second coolest. But um, it's legit to be in here, guys. I mean, I know this is not new for you guys, but um, it's actually, I mean, this looks a bit precarious, but other than that, um, it's, it's, it's pretty great to be in here. And my son fell down stairs about that height yesterday, two or three, two or three stairs. And so let's see if it's in the family. Um, and if, it's, if that's actually a gene I've passed on to him, we'll find out by the end of the day. But um, it's so good to be with you. I had no intentions to really super be here early this morning. I just thought, let me leave Seapoint, get through the Cape Town Marathon thing and make sure I'm here on time. And I was here a good... Uh, hour or so, two hours. I got you at 7.30 and, and we kicked off this meeting at 9.30. So um, McDonald's treated me well. And um, that's actually going to kick off into um, the, the introduction to my talk. Uh, we're in James chapter 5. Um, you would have heard a little extra bit got read this morning. Um, I told Roger, unfortunately, I prepped for verses 7 to 11, not 7 to 12. And so I'm not sure who's ever going to cover verse 12 of chapter 5 in your preaching series. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen next week or not, um, but we're going to be in James 5, 7 to 11. And let me kick off by saying this, that um, <clears throat> I'm putting to you, and I hopefully many of you will agree with me, that we live in what I could call uh, a very now world. Everything must happen now. It is a world of instant gratification, whether it is you know, Netflix or whatever it might be. Everything must happen now. Um, and I can attest to this uh, and the fact that my own heart has been shaped into um, you know, living in this world and, and expecting this sort of a thing from this world. Um, and I can, I can see it in a whole bunch of different things in different ways in my life. But McDonald's is one of those examples that I can put to you, funnily enough. Um, I realized that I struggle with slow fast food. Um, and and it's, uh, like, as you should, right? It's called fast food for a reason. You're expecting it fast. Now, we might be the second coolest neighborhood in Africa, but I can guarantee you we have the slowest McDonald's in the world in Seapoint. I really hope 
that none of you work there or you're the manager. Um, I said this at Seapoint last week. No one came and shot me afterwards, so that's cool. Um, but genuinely, we have the slowest McDonald's I've ever experienced. So much so that um, last week uh, for lunch, this time, my wife, my wife loves McDonald's as much as I do. We were like, cool, let's just go get McDonald's for lunch today. And I said, I'm not going to walk 60, 70 meters to the McDonald's in Seapoint. I will drive two kilometers to the McDonald's by the Greenpoint Stadium because I will be home quicker. I will be home quicker. I know, and even if it was like a margin of a few seconds either way, rather have the drive rather than be waiting in the queue, waiting in the, in the drive-thru, right? So we live in a world of instant gratification. I am an example of that. And we seem to be in a world these days where boredom is a thing of the past, or at least it can be a thing of the past for you. Um, for many of us, you know, 20 years ago, there was a, a, a real thing called boredom. You sat in a queue and you got bored. You were on a plane or a train and you got bored. We don't need to do, be that anymore. We don't need to have that. We have cell phones. You can listen to something, watch something, scroll something in whatever queue you're in, uh, whatever mode of transport you're sitting in, um, and that is just the world that we're living in. I'm not sort of condemning that one way or another um, yet. Uh, we will just now. But um, we live in a now world. That's my point. But we believe in both a now and not yet gospel. The truth of Jesus Christ that we hold on to as followers of him is, is not something that is purely waiting for something to arrive in the future, but neither have we got everything that we are hoping for right now. We, we live in a tension as Christ followers and believers in the good news of Jesus. Uh, we believe that heaven is coming to earth, to use the Bible's sort of spatial language. Heaven is invading earth, and that invasion has begun um, when Christ came for the first time. He died, he rose again, and the kingdom of heaven is, is here and is at hand. It's arrived in one sense, but also we're still waiting for the time when heaven has completely invaded earth, where every vestige of evil, sin, Satan, sickness, death, whatever you want to say, has been vanquished from this world. To use the sort of time metaphor, we are living in the present evil age, but we're waiting for that future kingdom age to completely arrive. In some senses, that future age has broken in, into our reality, into our presence. Some of the blessings of that world are experienced by us now as Christ followers, since Christ has risen and ascended. But we're not completely here yet. We're living in this tension. And how we get in on the promises of that age and the, 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 the present experience of foretaste of that future age is by faith in Jesus, by being counted in Christ. All the promises of Jesus come to us. His resurrection is the first taste of a completely renewed cosmos, a completely renewed universe that is on its way. The Bible tells us that our outer selves are wasting away, but our inward selves are being renewed day by day. But there is a bodily resurrection that's coming, and so even though this body is perishing, our souls are being restored, and one day our body is going to completely be restored, healed, resurrected, never to die again. That's the cool promise that we look forward to. And Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul would say that the entire earth, the entire cosmos is groaning, longing for that day to arrive, the day when there is no death, there is no sickness, there is no sin. The problem is, although this is all true, and as Christ followers, we believe this, and we experience this, and we live in this, um, what it also means is we're still in a world where there is immense suffering, right? The fullness of the kingdom has not yet arrived. And I, I really want to underscore that, that line, immense suffering. There's things like oppression, which we spoke about last week, 
pandemics which we've come through, cancer, death, slander, economic upheaval, rape, war, mental health. If you're Christ followers, you can be mocked or even persecuted severely for your beliefs in Jesus. We haven't arrived at complete freedom and glory yet. Last week, if you were here, um, in the first few verses of James chapter 5, God spoke quite harshly, to be honest, to uh, what we could call the, the, the unrighteous rich, those who intentionally are oppressing other people in this world. God had some severe words to say. And off the back of that harsh word, if you haven't you know, unpacked everything that that could mean in light of what we're going to speak about today, when you arrive at the first sentence of the day, you could be expecting God to, off the back of that, say, yeah, now the rest of you who are being oppressed and those of you who are suffering for a whole bunch of reasons, take action. Get back what's yours. That, that's what Karl Marx would say. That's sort of his worldview, his paradigm. We live in a lot of that in our world today. Turn on them. Turn on them. Fight them. But that's not what God says in his follow-up. That's not what God says in his follow-up. Instead, God talks about things like perseverance, patient endurance, or what I'm calling, sort of entitling my message today, waiting with faith for the Lord. Waiting with faith for the Lord. That's where God goes next in his letter. Um, and so let me just reread James 5, just so it's fresh. Uh, uh, you know, seven minutes, 55 seconds after you last heard it. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. For behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, what I want to do is kind of take this text apart um, and look at it under three headings, but they all need to be put back together and be held together at the end. But the three headings are this. James has got some commands for you and I to follow, but he doesn't just give us commands. He gives us examples to inspire us that we've already heard of there, and we'll dig into those. And then there are some truths to believe that undergird this whole thing that we need to hold on to if we're going to be able to even appreciate those, those examples and, and live out the things that God wants us to live out. And so let's dive in, commands to follow. We're going to kick off there. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Of the Lord. If I could paraphrase this, I've just said, wait, don't act rashly. Wait, don't act rashly. The Bible's teaching over and over and over again is for you and I as people who have sworn allegiance to Jesus, it's for you and I to be those who don't lash out, people who don't take revenge for ourselves, people who don't seek our own justice and vengeance. We're people who wait on the Lord. That's been something true of God's people all the way back through the Bible. And now we're here at this point in history, and we're told to wait for Jesus to come and wrap up this age that we find ourselves living in. It's going to feel long in some senses. If you just do the math and just think logistically, um, most people who've been waiting for Jesus waited for their entire lives and then died. 
before Jesus came, uh, right? We're 2,000 years after James wrote this letter, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting. And there's something that's so countercultural about this, right? In the world of instant gratification and complaining about slow, fast food and whatever it is, there's something crazy about waiting for things that you might not even see in your lifetime. It's mind-blowing. Only, only people who believe that there is some sort of afterlife and something beyond this world can actually wait for something that is possibly beyond our deaths. And yet that's what we're called to do. But I think it's hard to just turn on, okay? Patience is something you find in our hearts, and it's hard to just essentially tell our hearts to, to just flip a switch like that. You can't just turn on a heart posture in a straight-up moment. And so James, this is why James is going to sort of provide motivations for us and examples to inspire us and things like this. But just off the bat, I'd like to throw out a tool or two uh, right where we are. Um, please bear in mind, this is, not to, this is not just trying to say, here, do some external stuff. You need everything else that James is going to chat about. But part of the holistic package, I want to pop out two sort of spiritual practices which I really think feed into this thing of patience and waiting on the Lord. And the first is the spiritual practice, the habit, the discipline of fasting. It's not a habit that I think most of us in the sort of modern Western church give ourselves to often. No doubt we, we, we do church fast from time to time. But I think compared to other traditions and other parts of the world, um, we are quite light on, on fasting. But there is something about fasting as a practice that teaches us patience through self-denial. That's one of the lessons, one of the things that happens to us when we fast, when we spend time not eating, spend time praying and seeking the Lord and waiting on the Lord. It's about putting your whole being through this process, through this practice of waiting and not taking the shortcut to reach for the chocolate or whatever it might be. There's something about training ourselves. It's a way to train ourselves to persevere. And remember, this is huge as part of this, the theological reality that you and I are not, as we often call in Seapoint, brains on sticks. You're not a brain on a stick. Neither are you a soul that is trapped in your body. And, and the, the ultimate reality is just to fled, flee your body and be a floating spirit in the sky. That's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is God has created you and I as embodied beings, soul, mind, body, all as an integrated whole. And so sometimes... We train ourselves from the inside in, doctrine that shapes the way we think and feel and, and live out. But also, it's hugely important to be working on things from the outside in. Habits, practices become something of a reality in our lives. And so that's why I want to commend to you fasting as, as something to consider, as, as a way to help us wait with faith for the Lord. And the second one is Sabbath. I think this is something that we have been rediscovering at, you know, as a sort of common ground, citywide story over the last few years. We've been trying to give ourselves to this practice more and more. Um, I'm just making some assumptions about you here, but, but we've certainly felt that in Seapoint. Sabbath is the practice of once a week stopping and ceasing and resting and delighting with gratitude in who God is and what He has done for us. And there is something about putting aside all the to-do lists, all the things that were you know, necessary in the week, whether it's work, whether it's around the home, whatever it is. Uh, we sort of try and celebrate our Sabbath late Friday to late Saturday as our sort of 24-hour period um, as a family. Last Friday morning, my son decided this is the gap. He's already broken many, many things of mine, my two-year-old. This was the gap that, that he was gonna break the disk drive of my PlayStation. 
Now, I was, I was livid, I was frustrated, everything that this, I preached this last week, okay, and everything about being patient and enduring fell out the window, fell out of my world last Friday as, as my PlayStation got broken by my two-year-old. Um, and I was doing everything I could, Googling, trying to fix this PlayStation. Um, but by the time four o'clock came, I tell myself, Kyle, this, first of all, this is a PlayStation, number one, have some eternal perspective. And even though you're grumpy and you're downcast and you're just frustrated with your two-year-old for being a poor two-year-old, um, you need to stop. And we sat down as a family. We had our Sabbath braai. We read Psalm 92. And we sat down and we thanked God for everything that we could think of that we were grateful for. And it was a really helpful thing to be like, we'll fix the PlayStation in 24 hours. And now I actually feel fine. It's been seven days and I still haven't fixed my PlayStation. Um, God did something in me there. God did something in me there. But I want to commend to you this practice of Sabbath that helps us to stop, to cultivate a sense of patience in a sense from the outside, from the outside in. So that's the first command from James to us. Be patient. Here's the second. Verse 8. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, is at hand. And a paraphrase of this I've stolen from the book of Samuel, from the life of David, is strengthen yourself in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the things of Jesus. We need to use the time that we have in this period of waiting to do some soul work, to do some soul work. Um, that could be something we work on every day, every week, hopefully just a, a process throughout our lives. But again, in our culture, I want to say not only are we all about instant gratification, and all about nowness, uh, which is true, but I think all of that actually flows from being a, a people, slowly but surely, who have been constantly and consistently following and obeying and bowing down to and listening to our hearts. This is the thing that has been directing us, and our hearts need things now. Our hearts don't want to, to wait. Our hearts want what they want right now, and so we obey them, we bow down to them, we follow our hearts rather than submitting our hearts to God, rather than following and obeying God, rather than speaking to our hearts the truths of God, whatever they might be, or in all their sort of multifaceted glory. And so I want to encourage us to be people who speak to our hearts, to speak to our souls. That's what we, to our souls. That's what we see in, in, in Psalm 103. The psalmist kicks off and says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's actually talking to his inner spirit, his heart, his soul, and saying, bless the Lord inside Kyle person. Bless the Lord. That's what you need to do. Bless the Lord. We need to remind our souls that they are not the captain. Has anyone watched Captain Phillips? Do you know them with Tom Hanks and the, the, the pirates on the ship? Well, there's, if you haven't watched it, sorry. But there's a fantastic um, line which kind of became a meme where the, 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 the pirate comes up to the captain of the ship and he just said, I am the captain now. And if you know it, you know it. If you don't, I'm sorry. It means nothing to you. But, that, but that's what you need to do and I need to do to our souls. Maybe we don't say that we are the captain now, but we need to say Jesus is the captain now. Jesus is the captain now. He's the one we are following and fasting is a way of doing that again. Fasting is a way of strengthening our souls. Um, uh, and scripture is another. And both these things come to play in the life of Jesus. Early on in his ministry, right, in fact, before he even started his ministry, what happened was Jesus went off to the desert. The Spirit led him there for 40 days. He fasted. 
and spend time being tempted by the devil and quoting scripture to him. But what Luke and Mark record is that Jesus came back from the desert, from his period of fasting, in the strength and power of the Lord to kick off his ministry. Jesus practiced these things as a way of strengthening his heart, of establishing his heart. So fasting is one, as I say, scripture is another. We need to speak to our souls, teach our souls truth. And there's tons of truths in the Bible that we need to, you know, teach our souls, and we need to hopefully teach them all these things. Um, but James has got a couple of specific ones that we're going to get to just now. I think that's very relevant to this idea of waiting for God in this period that we find ourselves in of potential suffering and all sorts of stuff. But we need to speak to ourselves truth, because otherwise you and I are going to be tossed to and fro by all sorts of winds of teaching and philosophies in this world. And if they're not the truth of the Bible, they're not going to help us wait with patience for the Lord because they're going to turn us away from Jesus. They're going to point us to other things that we need instead of waiting patiently with faith for the Lord. Things that will ultimately hurt us, lead us away from the things of God. And so the truth is without, the truth, is without truth, we end up believing lies. The lies, lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about others, all of which hurt us when we live those lies out. And lies about others is exactly where James goes next in his sort of third and final command to us today is this, verse nine. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Why? So that you may not be judged. And I've paraphrased it like this. Let's beware of infighting. Beware of infighting amongst each other. So let's be honest, in, in, in the chaos of suffering in life, hardship, frustrations, whatever it is that life throws at us, when we're at our worst as people, what happens is we turn on each other. We turn on each other. We really do. We criticize fellow believers. We lash out at those we love the most. Um, if you're not married, I really hate to say this to you, but for the marriage in the room, you know that this happens in marriage all the time. The person we love the most becomes the person we lash out to the most. We criticize. At least that's true in my marriage. We grumble. We complain. And that goes back all the way to the Garden of, the Eden, of, of, of Eden, right? It happened straight away in the Garden of Eden. Fruit got eaten. Sin entered the world. And what's the first thing that happened? Adam blamed Eve for deceiving him. And then he took it one step further because he wasn't done. He was then going to God and saying, yeah, and also I'm blaming you for giving me this woman in the first place who deceived me. Okay, everyone was apparently guilty except Adam in the Garden of Eden. Eve and God were actually responsible according to Adam. What happens is when you and I lose something to fight for or when we feel like we haven't got something to fight for, we fight against each other. If you've watched war movies, if you've watched Band of Brothers in particular, there's one episode of that where the Band of Brothers, who are meant to be fighting the Nazis, are unable to in this period. They're just spending time with each other, and they just turn on each other consistently. Everybody gets up in each other's face. We end up judging each other and focusing on everybody else's wrongdoing rather than recognizing that there is a judge who is coming, who is standing at the door, and who's going to judge every single one of us, including us. And so instead of focusing on everybody else's wrongs, we should be focusing on our own wrongs in light of the coming of Jesus, the judge, right? That's the, 
That's where the eyes should be focusing. Instead of fighting each other, we should be fighting sin in our own lives as we prepare to meet Jesus, our judge. Now, we're meeting him as, as friends. We're not meeting him as one who's ultimately going to condemn us as, as Christ followers. But there is still a judgment coming. There is still rewards to be dished out and things to lose on the other side of judgment. So that's the correct posture we're meant to have. Okay? Not looking at it. It's the classic. It's the, it's the log in our eye instead of, the, instead of the speck in someone else's eye. It's the same thing that Jesus is getting at there. Turn the attention on ourselves rather than others. So those are James's big ideas for us today. Those are his commands. These are the things that he is asking us to do in light of all the things that we, all the pressures we might be facing, whether they are just sort of temporary pressures, or maybe they won't feel temporary, but just the things of this world um, that are just going to happen to everybody, life stress, job stress, work stress, whatever it might be, as well as the, the terrible things where sin has happened and sin is being caused to you, where people are oppressing you, where people are being unjust towards you. Perhaps you're being persecuted in some shape or form for your beliefs in Jesus. Maybe you're just being called names. Maybe your job is on the line. Maybe you're gonna be in another country where your life might be at threat. But these are the things that James is calling us to. But he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just tell us a bunch of stuff and say, good luck, good luck with that. No, he gives us examples to inspire us. And that's where we're gonna go next, verse seven and eight. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, right, there's the command, and see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Now, I think most of us don't live in this world. There might be some farmers in here, but the majority of us are probably not farmers, and we don't live our lives feeling like we're consistently at the mercy of nature, right? We pride ourselves in being technological, modern Westerners who've just managed to control all sorts of things by our tech. It's not 100% true. We are still very much at the mercy of nature, and the last few years taught us that, but these people knew that. The farmer knows that. And I think what happens for you and I is we bring this sort of thing into our relationship with God, where we think we're in control far more often than we really are, and we think we can have things happen now and have things just, you know, on instant with God and in our own lives, rather than this idea of cultivating patience. And so the farmer knows that they are at the mercy of the weather. They're at the mercy of the weather. They need to trust the weather. The weather's been dependable, you know, season after season, and so they now know when to plant, when to harvest, when to do X, Y, Z. They know they can't rush it, and they know nothing they do is gonna speed up the weather and the harvest. No matter how much a farmer might throw his toys out the cot, no matter how much he might shout and swear at the clouds, it's not going to help. It's not going to change a thing. Time has to have its full effect. And I actually love that James here doesn't just say, wait for the, you know, the weather to do its thing. He talks about the early and the late rains. He kind of mentions two rains here, which is interesting. And um, obviously did a little, did a little research here. And what I found out is that the first rains um, around about this time of the year in their calendar um, were for when you were planting seeds in the ground. And the first rains needed to come to help that germination happen. Then the rest of the season happens, and then right at the end, April, May, or whatever it is, the final rains need to come to help that harvest fully bloom right before you, you take it all in. Both rains are necessary. 
And if the, the farmer is impatient and appreciates the first rain but not the last rain, the harvest is ruined. He might hurt the harvest. He might ultimately kill the harvest. And this reminds me of exactly what James said right at the beginning of his letter. In fact, he's probably now expounding on something that he mentioned right at the beginning where he said this in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Remember, James is talking about steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, I think although we're waiting for this thing that's coming to relieve us of the suffering, which is true and guaranteed, I think there's also something that God is wanting to do in us, all right? I love this, okay? Presence formation mission. One of the things is we need to become like Jesus, and part of his curriculum and part of the way that he makes us like Jesus is through this thing of patience and through this thing of waiting on the Lord. It changes and does stuff in our hearts that makes us different kinds of people than we would have been without it. And someone, after I preached the morning service last week on this text, came to me and said, here's a great thing. Take it or leave it for the evening meeting. And I, I took it, and I'm going to take it again and use it for you guys. He spoke to me about Chinese bamboo, and I went and verified it. Chinese bamboo, you will plant the seed in the ground. And you'll plant it there, and you'll start watering it. And you'll water it for five days, five weeks, five months. And you'll keep watering it for five years, and you will not see anything above the surface. You'll see nothing. You'll just have to trust and wait that something is happening. And then after five years of nothing, within five weeks, the bamboo has grown to 90 feet. Five years under the surface, patiently waiting, patiently enduring. And then finally, we reap the rewards. Compound interest, okay, has its full effect, and 90 feet of bamboo happens. And I think that is the heart of God for our lives. We are so used to wanting to see change now. God hasn't come through to me. I'm not feeling God. I'm the... Man, we need to be patient with the process, piece by piece, day by day, patiently waiting for the Lord as we spend time with Him, as we slowly become like Him, as we do the things He's asked us to do, Presence Formation Mission, we reap a harvest on the other side that we would never have been able to reap if we didn't have to go through that process. So that's the first example. Here's the second or the second two, in verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Here's two more examples. Take the prophets. Let's take the prophets. The prophets were the guys in the Old Testament who really heard God. Right? They were God's mouthpieces. They stuck with God through thick and thin, unlike a lot of characters in the Old Testament. You look at the kings, and the majority of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament were miles away from anything that we want to consider a model of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. But the prophets were the guys. They spoke for God consistently, but almost unanimously, the prophets received backlash for their proclamation of truth, for what they believed, for what they stood for, for their allegiance to God. And what's even worse is they weren't just persecuted by the other nations and by foreigners who didn't believe the God of Israel and, you know, were offended by him, as you could imagine, or whatever. No, these guys were persecuted by their fellow Israelites. The people they were trying to love and serve and point towards God were the very people who mocked them and persecuted them time and time 
again. And so these are the men, the prophets, who ultimately, in almost all their lives, had to, had to entrust their lives and what was going to happen to them to God. They had to leave their lives in the hand of God over and over and over again. And part of the reason that you and I should be people who not only read the New Testament but read the Old Testament and specifically read the prophets is exactly for this reason. Is exactly for this reason. James has given us a legitimate way here to receive from the prophetic literature. Not the only way to receive, but one of them. To remind us of this, that you and I, in all our trials and tribulations, are not alone. You are not the first person to walk this path. Many others have walked before you. And God did not leave them. God did not forsake them. He was with them. And I think there's just something about reading stories of others who've gone before us, who've laid their lives down for the same cause that, that we are, that just gives us steel in our spine, that gives us confidence, that gives us boldness to say, I'm not alone, let's go. Like them, I can too. There's just something, that's why I read Christian biography, because there's just something about it that gives us confidence. So that's the prophets. We see their lives, and we see how God worked in their lives. They were blessed by God, and they are the ones who are laughing now, Right? Job is the second example, Job. Job was a man, if you don't know, who uh, loved God faithfully. There's a whole book in the Bible about his life. Um, he walked faithfully with God, as best as anyone could, I could imagine, and yet he received the worst suffering you and I could imagine, the worst suffering. He lost his family, he lost his income, he lost his home, he was consistently losing his health. Almost the majority of Job's life was one of intense, immense Suffering and, uh, suffering. and on top of that, to make it worse, his buddies, um, who were the people who you know, should have been helping him, and I think they tried their best to help him, but all they did was, was heap more stuff on him by essentially saying, geez, you must have brought something you know, upon yourself here. Like, what is it that you have done? How have you sinned that has brought this upon yourself? It wasn't helpful. Now, Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes we suffer because it's, it's, it's the consequences of our, of our sin. That is the case sometimes, but it wasn't the case at all in Job's. Why? Because you read the book, and you get an, an understanding that Job um, never did in his life. Hopefully he, he, he has that understanding now. But you recognize that actually behind the scenes, behind the curtains, Satan, the deceiver, was, was trying something on God. And Satan had said to God, man, I want to show to you that if you remove all the blessings and all the, 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 the icing on the cake from, from, from Job, he's going to deny you and he's going to turn from you. And so God let Satan have his way. He was still ultimately in control. He was overseeing the whole thing. But God knew that Job was going to be one who persevered through thick and thin and that he himself, God, would be there preserving Job through thick and thin. And so he allowed this to happen in Job's life. And Job did persevere. And the truth that Job hopefully knows now, but we know now from reading that book, is that the works of Satan do not have the last word in our lives. Satan is always on a leash. Evil is always on God's leash. He doesn't have the last word in Job's life or in our life. And eventually in Job, he's vindicated. In this life, Job receives a whole bunch of blessing from God. Um, he's completely vindicated. Um, as I say, he never learned the full reasoning behind his suffering while he was alive. He does now. But let me say this, that we've got a picture there of Job. We've got a whole bunch of other examples in the Bible. 
We don't have enough to know the complete reason why suffering happens to us in this world. And I don't think the Bible fully joins, fully joins the dots. I think there's mystery there of why, why God has allowed evil and suffering to happen. We, but what we do know is what the Bible has revealed, and it's enough to give us answers and comfort, unlike other worldviews, I think. Okay, we know that there is a good God who is in control, who is doing things under the surface that we could never see. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that little window of seeing behind the curtain of Job's life gives us a window into the fact that there's more going on than what we can see. But we can trust God, that he's a God who's ultimately gonna vindicate his people, who is gonna make their faith count for something. The bottom line is this, our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. And we don't have faith in faith. I think that's how Hollywood often pitches Christianity. We're a bunch of people who just have faith in this nebulous thing called faith, and we're trusting our belief in something. That's not what faith is. We have faith in God. We have faith in who he is, what he says, what he has done. We can trust a person, the being of God. That's what we're holding on to, and that's what we're going to ultimately be rewarded for at the end of the day. So those are the examples. Here's the last thing from James. And it's kind of the bedrock of our motivation, which is a whole bunch of truths that we need to believe in order to be people of what we could call holy grit, who are able to persevere with faith in this age. Here's the truths to believe. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 11. We've heard them all before, but here they are, just one after another. The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. And verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I just want to say to us today, believe these things. Believe these things. Speak to our souls these truths. The people of God have been believing them ever since God first proclaimed them, I think as far as back as the book of Exodus, if not before. A day of judgment is coming. Paul in Acts 17 says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. That man is Jesus. It's coming. That day is coming. No one knows the day or the hour. Don't listen to the people who tell you they know. We don't know. What we do know is it's on its way. It is on its way. And somehow the fact that someone 2,000 years ago rose from the grave is proof of that. So the fact that there is a Galilean peasant called Jesus who claimed to be God, who was crucified by the Romans, and yet who rose from the grave as a historical fact is proof. You're like, what is that all about? Paul says, it's proof that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus was either an absolute liar, he was an absolute lunatic crazy man, or he was the Lord, the Lord of the harvest, who was coming back on that great day. And I just want to say this, if you don't believe what I say today, you're here, you're not a Christ follower, we're so glad you're with us, and if everything that I've said is not enough to convince you that Jesus is real and that you need him, um, then I want to encourage you, leave here and go and consider the evidence that Jesus died and rose again. But please don't pretend that it's not of vital importance to you and your life. It is of ultimate importance. It's a serious day that is coming. 
It's a day of judgment for those who spit in the face of the God of the Bible. As we saw last week, for those who hurt and oppress others or have mocked and persecuted God's people. But for us, as people who know and love Jesus, are united to him by faith, it is a day of vindication. For those of us who have been oppressed, who have suffered for our faith or whatever it might be, but have trusted in Jesus. It's a good day that we look forward to. So I'm gonna invite the band up as I say a few last words here. And the first is this. The first is I wanna say to those of us who consider ourselves Christ followers in the room, remember this, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in some shape or form have either oppressed others, mocked others, hurt others, lied to others, cheated, you name it, we have done it. We know that. You name it, we have done it. We all deserve to be on the one side of that judgment day when it arrives, eh? All of us. And so if, it, if it's passed over us because of our faith in Jesus, if what is our due is not coming to us because Jesus took it on our behalf, let's be grateful for the grace of God that has reached out to us and rescued us and opened our eyes and melted our hearts to receive Christ's forgiveness and to receive what Christ did on the cross on our behalf. We should be tender, humble, grateful people, not those who are standing over others in judgment or standing over each other in judgment because we're all sinners saved by grace and made saints by him. We've experienced what James highlights there, a God of kindness and a God of compassion. So let's be people who leave our lives in the hands of God and we trust the God of justice and the God of mercy to do what's right ultimately. Lastly, for those who, who are sitting here and you are still currently under that judgment, you're on the one side of that day that is coming. I just wanna, I just wanna urge you, I just wanna urge you that this merciful and compassionate God is not, a, is not a God who is distant, but he is a God who came and suffered so that you can be restored to him. The suffering that we experience in this life is not one that God is unaware of. He actually decided to come himself and experience it in all its shapes and forms. And he came and he laid his life down so that you could meet him now as savior and not then as judge. And I wanna just urge you, repent and believe. Change your mind on who Jesus is, who you are, all the, all the things you've thought about the world and God and, and, and believe what he says about himself, about the trajectory of history, about who you are and what you need. And accept his work on the cross for your salvation and start walking a whole new life following him as the Lord of the universe, but also your Lord, who you bow down to, whose heart you follow and your heart you align to his heart. That's the invitation. That's the invitation. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond in song. Father, thank you so much that you have not left us in ignorance in the world that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves taking pressure from all sides, no matter who we are, Christ followers or non-Christ followers, we can find ourselves on the receiving end of suffering and hurt and oppression and injustice in all sorts of ways. But you have not left us in ignorance. You've told us that there is something deeply wrong in the, in the heart of humanity that causes the stuff in the first place. 
that we have partnered with evil to hurt one another. And we all ultimately deserve that judgment that is coming, and yet in your kindness and your mercy, you have gone before us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for that, we are thankful that we can latch onto that, that we can have perspective, that we can have answers, that we can have hope that this life is not all there is, that the kingdom is at hand, that the Lord is at hand, that he's standing at the door, and very soon, in your terms, we will be freed from this world of Satan, sin, and death and live in a world of eternal glory, eternal love, in resurrected bodies, in a renewed cosmos, with you, our good, gracious, kind, and merciful God. And for that, we are grateful. And for that, Lord, we're gonna respond in song now one last time. Let's stand and let's sing together.